That was beautiful. Um, happy Mother's Day. As Kevin was praying and uh, reminded us of the blessings of being a grandparent, it reminded me of the blessing of being a grandparent. So I'm just going to talk the rest of the time about me being a, a grandparent. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> one thing that did... I, I won't do that. I'll resist the temptation. But one thing that did come to my mind is um, a grandparent, of course, and you, of course, you look forward to it because you get little babies and you kind of get a, you know, another round and you don't have all the responsibilities. You just get to love on them. And, and I was looking forward to that and I experienced that and continue to. And it's this huge blessing that just makes my heart swell. But what I didn't anticipate as another great blessing that makes my heart swell is watching my daughter delight in her children. So it's like this double, not only do I get to delight in her children, but to see my daughter delight in her children just makes my heart swell. I'm grateful to God for that. Well, we uh, do what we do our best here, I think, at New Covenant Fellowship to maintain God's uh, standard of holding motherhood in high regard. And we want to honor the office of motherhood today. And one way we'll do that is by showering our mothers with little gifts, a little something special for you. We'll be waiting for you as you walk out the door after the service. So you've got to stay the whole time to get your little treat. And another way we'll do that is, and by the way, thank you Jessica and Jaden for preparing those special treats for the moms here today. Another way that we will honor the office of motherhood is by uh, devoting our sermon time to moms. Now, as you know, traditionally, before I launch into these kind of sermons, I like to uh, sprinkle in a little bit of humor. So you can lighten up a little bit before I come down with the hammer, lighten up a little bit and and enjoy these um, sayings. That's a few things to consider. Some of them are recycled and some of them are new. So mom's recipe for iced coffee. One, have kids. Two, make coffee. Three, forget about the coffee. Four, drink it cold. Iced coffee. Uh, They say women speak 20,000 words a day. I have a daughter who gets that done by breakfast. A toddler can do more in one unsupervised minute than most people can do in a day true. Uh, Please excuse the mess. My kids are making memories of me yelling at them to clean up the mess. (laughs) I love it when I find myself screaming, stop screaming at my kids, because that's how I teach them irony. Silence is golden, unless you have kids, and then silence is very suspicious. Sleep at this point is just a concept, something I'm looking forward to investigating in the future, said a young mom. Now, when your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog. So somebody in the house is happy to see you when you get home. (laughs) And last, and this is recycled, but my son's a police officer. So a police recruit was asked during the exam, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? And he said, call for backup. First, uh, I I do want to acknowledge that Mother's Day is 
different for different people. It's not always a great feeling. It's not always a great experience. Perhaps we've uh, lost a mother in the, in the uh, near future, and that elicits emotions of pain. Perhaps we had a, a rough childhood or a rough relationship with our mother growing up, but per- perhaps we're, we've always longed to be a mom, and God has not blessed us in that way. I recognize that it's not like this perfect holiday. Uh, But regardless of our experience, regardless of our successes and our failures, uh, the office of motherhood is designed by God. It's an absolute beautiful thing. It's very important to us in this world. It's a way for mankind to glorify God in the way that He has um, designed them. There is no substitute for a good and godly mom. We live in a high-tech world, we have all kinds of advances, and there's nothing that comes even close to the power of a good and godly mom and the influence that they have. There's no substitute for, as Kevin mentioned in his prayer and scripture, for how moms um, reveal to us the love of God as they nurture and raise their little babies. Both offices, motherhood and fatherhood, are not just designed to bring uh, children into the world. They're designed to love those children and nurture those children. To love those children and teach those children how to love God back for His creation. And then today, in our text, we're going to watch a mom. We're going to learn from a mom who is agonizing over her real daily experience down here on earth and and begs and the divine, she wants the divine, she wants heaven, she wants her God involved in the daily grind and the daily experience. She wants it to be connected. She she needs answers. Uh, She needs relief. And that is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And I want to look at two things in our passage this morning. Her predicament and then her... Petition. It's a Hannah's story is remarkable. I could preach many sermons on it. I have to try to limit myself to just this. But it's a great, true story of how a distraught mom wants to bring desperately God into her situation. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to read 1 through 8 and then a few more verses. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zaph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. 
And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Skipping to verse 15. Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am woman troubled in spirit. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So her predicament is pretty obvious. Hannah is a woman that desires more than anything else in her life at this time, a baby, a a child. But God has closed her womb, our text tells us. To make matters worse, uh, she lives in a house, a a polygamist household. Uh, Her husband has two wives. Polygamy is so popular in the Old Testament that some Skeptics often use it to criticize Scripture and they say, you know, what, what's up with this? In the Old Testament it was okay and then all of a sudden in the New Testament you Christians say it's not okay. So you just kind of pick and choose out of Scripture what is permissible and what's not permissible. And it gets confusing sometimes. Granted, polygamy is rampant in the Old Testament. And it makes it so much easier in Scripture when God just comes out with another commandment like the ten. Who he, makes, he makes certain things just so clear. But there is no commandment that's, that says thou shalt not be a polygamist. Well, there's lots of arguments, and this is not the time to go into them. But suffice it to say that when you look at, at Scripture and how God designed it and how God planned for it, you find very clearly a lot of support that marriage is designed for one man and one woman, and it's an absolutely beautiful, exclusive relationship. And that's all throughout Scripture. And I would add, whenever you see polygamy in the Old Testament, it, what follows it is destruction, heart pain, and disaster. Wherever it happens to mention it and go into any kind of detail, that's what we find. So I would say that actually the writing is on the wall. All you have to do is look at the results of it. It's not a godly thing. It's not from the kingdom of God. And I know that sometimes it's frustrating that we're reading along in Scripture and you find something that a Bible character did and you want God to say, and that was wrong. But He doesn't. He just goes on because His plan is for the story of redemption. And there are times when it's highlighted and there are times when it's not. The Bible's not just... Uh, a book of moral stories. It's a book of real life. And sometimes he just says it happened. There's no comment about it. I think Hannah's uh, story is a great example of the dangers and the pain that polygamy can bring about. So Penina, wife number two, harasses her. She doesn't just enjoy her own children and pity Hannah, but she provokes Hannah, she harasses Hannah, and it says this has gone on for year after year, day after day, and so you can imagine this woman who desires a child, and yet she sees this other woman in the household, and she sees how her husband treats her and loves on the children, she she sees how she carries them with great pride, and gives birth, and hugs them, and kisses on them, and raises them, and nurtures them, and proudly presents them when she goes to the marketplace. She sees this and it it grieves her. And it's rubbing salt in a wound. Imagine living with that day in 
and day out. So every scene is a reminder of here's what you don't have. Here's what you don't have. Here's what you don't have. And that's a great source of pain, that provocation. But the, but the, the foundation, the greatest source of her pain simply is that she wants a baby and she does not have a child. She desperately wants to be a mother. There's this deep anguish. There's no question about it. Verse 10, she's deeply distressed. This is what it's doing to her. It's twisting her insides. Verse 15, her spirit is troubled. Verse 16, she has great anxiety and vexation. She is very, very troubled. It's eating at her from the inside out. And we might ask, you know, in our modern society, what is the big deal? I mean, how can this just tear at her so much? What's the big deal about um, simply because she can't bear a child? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, Hannah is a very godly woman. And just what I'll touch on this morning, you'll see that. But if you read the whole story, she is incredibly godly. She has a heart and a love for God. And God says that children are a gift of the Lord. They're an inheritance of the Lord. God gives children to women, to men, to mankind. And she reads Scripture and understands that this is a blessing from God and this is something I want to experience in my life. And she wants to use her femininity and her womanhood to receive and experience that kind of blessing. It's an inner yearning that is there. There's another reason why uh, she would perhaps, or women, especially in that culture, would grieve so much at their barrenness. Because their culture greatly valued children. They greatly valued motherhood. So uh, mothers were sort of cultural heroes in that day. They were held in, in great esteem because the whole culture benefited from mothers that bore children, that brought children into the world. Now to say that probably will get a rise out of some people today. To say that, the, that mothers are cultural heroes because our, value, our culture does not value, hopefully not our church culture and our Christian culture, but our culture at large does not value motherhood as it once did. As a matter of fact, our culture almost sees motherhood as a form of bondage. Now, Hannah's culture pitied her, you poor soul. They, they understood it. They got it. They could feel, sympathize, empathize with the pain. I'm so sorry that you cannot bring a child into this world. And today's culture, in a sense, kind of pities mom for having to live under the pressure of even having any expectation to have to bring a child into this world. It's like this total reversal. But she was a cultural hero because it's a blessing from God. But it goes more into that and how children benefit the culture. First of all, they boost the economy. This is just real life and it's how it, how it works. And you have children and you're, you know, you're a family. You're a mom and dad and you need help sometimes. And it's very, these little energetic beings can be very, very helpful. My little grandchild, just as soon as she could walk almost, she loved to serve. She's a little servant. Children like to do that, and parents need children 
to help out. And so in that agrarian uh, culture, but also a lot of, you had your own family business and you would teach your children to learn it and they would benefit it and it boosted your economy, it boosted your prosperity and your status in the culture. It also helped not just your family, but those around you. It, it blessed the entire community. It's not rocket science. Uh, when my kids, and all three of them did it, when my kids were out cutting the grass for me, it freed me up to do other things, whether it was work to help put more uh, food, food on the table or, or be prosperous in other areas. That's just how it worked. And it's a very, very important part of the economy. Now, needless to say, in our culture, after underappreciating motherhood and childbearing and enjoying the freedoms of pro-choice, there are societies that are now realizing uh-oh, we don't have enough children in our economy. We don't have enough children in our culture, in our society. And there are countries that have kind of come to their senses because of the fruits of bad ideas that are coming up with all kinds of incentives to mothers to have children is going so far as to pay uh, people to bear children because we're not reproducing ourselves. Our reproduction rate is um, declining rapidly. Now this affects the economy. It's just real life. It's how the world works. There are consequences to bad ideas and a lot of cultures are, are finally realizing that it's a mistake not to value motherhood. It's not just this personal choice thing. It has practical consequences in a whole country's economy. So they're trying to undo the damage. By now, maybe we should honor motherhood and hold it in higher esteem than we have been. Secondly, uh, mothers were cultural heroes because having children actually promoted your national security. Uh, maybe more so in that day than in our day because in our day you can have a small country that has a big weapon and that speaks loud. You got a big club and that makes a difference. But still, we talk about the size of armies. You hear it all the time in the news. There's the threat of China's army because they're coming, becoming so large. And in this culture, you know, if you didn't have enough people, if you didn't bear enough sons to, uh, to take up arms, the culture next to you or the nation next to you, the people group, the tribes, whatever, they get bigger and they come over and they just step on you and squash you and take away your goods, your your money and your freedoms and so forth, and they enslave you. So part of your national security had to do with um, reproducing yourselves. You've got to have enough people to defend the nation. We see a little bit of this in our current event with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Their army is much smaller, but what did they do? Well, they institute militia. And so people who aren't usually in the military... You're not going to come on my, my land and take over my property without a fight. And so they're learning military techniques. They're taking up weapons. And they're increasing the platform or the footprint of their armies. We see the same thing as China looms over Taiwan, uh, threatening to take Taiwan over. They are not only doing military dr drills, but they are forming local militias to make their presence bigger. So common citizens take up arms. You need people to fight battles, just practically speaking. Uh, whenever I think about the national security and, and sons, uh, and particularly 
defending what's good and right and defending our homeland. I think of um, a scene in Saving Private Ryan. There's a whole wonderful movie about this very concept, the drama between mothers bearing sons and then they, they, don't, they don't want them to go off to war. It's a terrible thing to have to carry around in a burden, but it, it happens in life. It's real. And in this movie, there's this one particular scene that gets me every time when she, the mother of these four sons that are in the war, in World War II, she lives in the Midwest and there's this long, flat driveway and she's at the kitchen sink doing dishes as mothers did and she sees this vehicle and it's got a little dust cloud behind it and it's getting closer and closer because it's got such a long, dirt driveway and it gets into sight, she sees it's a military vehicle and she fears the worst. It comes up and the military officers, they come out and they... They, she comes out on the front porch and they bear the bad news about the death of some of her sons and she, she just buckles. Just like, like dropping clothing. She just collapses. She buckles. And it, it was a beautiful uh, acting scene of, of the, the love at, between a mother and a son and that kind of news. The, the drama happens. It's real life. Uh, another reason that mothers were cultural heroes is simply because of health care and elderly care. You know, you have, it, it works in life that if you have children, uh, hopefully you can maintain a good enough relationship to where when, you know, you took care of them and then when you need taken care of, they'll be there for you. Now we see this in our lives all the time. We see it in our church family all the time. And it seems like uh, a no-brainer and yet because of the lack of reproduction in our societies, there are cultures that are suffering, elderly that are suffering with nobody to care for them. Um, I remember it's probably been a couple years ago now, the reproduction rate for Japan is, was at 1.3. So uh, essentially for every two people that die, only one person is born into the world. But there are a lot of lonely elderly there to the point where... Um, they were, they were found dead in their apartments only because of the stench. And there, there's, there was just nobody to call them, nobody to check up on them, to stop by. There's no contact. There's nobody there. And it makes elderly vulnerable in that sense. And even if you have lots and lots of money to go into the best place, there's no advocate like somebody that, that knows you well and loves you. There's no advocate like a family member, even on top of all of the latest technology and medical advancements that we have. So without, without demeaning singles, without demeaning the barren, a mother is a cultural hero. Um, simply by motherhood, you are serving not just your family, you're serving those around you by the skills and the talents that you teach your children. You are boosting the economy. You're boosting national security. You're taking care of the elderly. You know, so motherhood greatly serves all of mankind. And we need kids. Yeah, I think about, I can't help but to, to mention the fact that look at how in our little church, and I don't know uh, what other churches do because I'm a pastor and I don't get to visit other churches. But I think that what we do here is pretty unique, and that is... We have kids plugged into very important positions just for our worship services in order to do church the way we do. We have teenagers and kids plugged
plugged into very responsible places. They're serving us in that way so that we can do what we're doing. I've got the guys up there in sound right now. You know, look at, look at the worship team. There's, there's so many ways that our youth serve us so well. We're blessed, and it's a great example of the importance of motherhood. And so here's poor Hannah. She's feeling this pressure. She's feeling it from inside, her own desires. She feels it from the culture. How can you not? How can you not in that world feel this pressure? And yet her womb is closed and it pains her. And again, I think about you know, all of that pressure on her and how today things have, have turned, the tables have turned as far as our perspective on the preciousness and the value of motherhood and how today it kind of looks at motherhood as the burden and the oppressive thing as opposed to the absence of being a mother. And the idea of the, you know, the pro-choices and so forth that opens up avenues for women to be free and you know, you're not just a womb. You're not just a womb. You're not just here to, to, uh, to have babies and, and all that and that argument there. And it's oppressive, especially Christianity and tradition, conservative. It's, a, it's this cultural pressure on you and it's put you in a bondage. But what has really happened, if you think about it, it's just a, a trade-off. Women aren't any more free than they were before. Now, there's still cultural pressure, but it's just in a different area. The cultural pressure for young ladies today is to have a career. I mean, it's very obvious. That's what now you're expected to do. And so it's really more of a trade-off than a freedom, I think. It's, it's, it, again, it's just society and culture saying, here's what you need to be. Here's how I want you to act. I want you to conform to what we want you to be. So the point is, all we've done really, I think, uh, just to say the least, is traded one form of bondage, if you, if you call that a bondage, for another. Which means that if women today fail to live up to the cultural ideal, they suffer for it. And that's sad. I'm sad for our young ladies that our culture has uh, young ladies just running in circles about this ideal and be that and be this and be that. And, and they bear the brunt for it. Uh, a lot of young ladies are on medication. There's all kinds of uh, just internal problems, external problems, eating disorders, depression, anxiety. These are young people we're talking about. And a lot of that has to do with the culture wanting, the different voices of the culture wanting to define you and tell you what you have to, to be. If nothing else, it causes us, I hope, to try to get to the foundation and to get to the truth of the matter, why am I here? Why am I a female? What am I supposed to do with my life? Because the answers to those questions are found in Holy Scripture. So there she is with this predicament. What does she do? Well, it's a petition. She prays. She takes it to God. 9 through 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life 
and no razor shall touch his head. So she prays, and she prays a powerful, powerful prayer. But to help us understand how powerful, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, utilize a resource, Robert Alter. Robert Alter, he's old now, and actually, to my knowledge, he was never a Christian. But he is a renowned expert at reading and understanding Hebrew literature. Great at it. And so even Bible scholars uh, use his information. And he happened to write two commentaries on the books. Uh, I mean a commentary, one commentary on the two books of Samuel. And he says in verse 9 when it says, Hannah rose, or your version might say, stood up. He says it's an idiom. In other words... There's a lot more to it than you realize when it says that. It's an idiom. Uh, like we might say um, in our culture, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. It means more than what I say, right? We're not talking just about a literal bridge. We're talking about whatever the topic is. We're not going to problem solve that today. It's just going to have to wait when the time comes. We've got plenty to do today. To handle when the time comes, we'll cross that bridge. We'll handle that. Now, rose, this word she arose, is mostly used, you know, literally like we would use the word and think of it in Scripture. But it also has in it this sense of something else very specific, and that is you're not just getting up to go somewhere, but you are getting up with purpose. You're getting up specifically to accomplish something. So she's not just arising, but she's arising, she's getting up to do something. And it's the same word that Deborah used when she tells to Barak, Arise, arise, the Lord has given into your hands the Midianites. So in other words, get up and accomplish this thing that God has for you. It's a powerful idiom here, so it means that she arose, she took charge. She, instead of remaining passive or becoming passive, she became active and she, she became very decisive. She came, she stood up with the intention of doing something very, very specific. She's going to do something about her predicament. She's just not going to dwell in it. She's not going to stay in a puddle of tears. She's not going to stay there and feel um, sorry for herself. What she's determined to do about it is pray. I'm going to get up, I'm going to rise, I'm going to tackle this thing by prayer. And she's going to pray radically enough, the idea is, so that something changes, something's got to give, because she's so miserable. She's absolutely miserable on a daily basis. So she's gotten to the point where something has to give. She's in anguish. And this is not your average petition. In this petition, she's so desperate, for some kind of change that she makes a vow. And it's a, it's a humble prayer. It's a godly prayer. And she just in essence says, Lord, if you would just consider my predicament, if you would just remember me, God, Lord of hosts, Lord in the heavens, if you would just remember me, I would love a child. And not just a child, but she specifically asks for a son. So, here's what she does. She takes charge. She rises. And she goes to the temple. It was that time of year. And she goes to the temple. And that's 
where you meet with God. And she needed to meet with God. And she prays so fervently that the head priest there, Eli, thinks that she is slobber and drunk. And that's how passionate she is in her prayer. Verse 15, not so, my Lord, she said. He's thinking that she's drunk. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now, there are many things in here, I think, that beg for examination. I mean, what, what happened? She prayed. Her face is no longer downcast. The anguish is gone. Or here's a question. Now, what did she just do? Did she just cut a deal with God? Can you do that? Is that how it works? Is that how prayer works? We, we find something that, that God wants and then we offer that to Him so that we get what we want. We, we, put, a, uh, we put something of value. We try to pay the price. We put the quarter in the gumball machine and we turn it in and we get the gumball we want. I mean, what is going on? With this, is, is this like the uh, the deal that that soldiers make in a foxhole? God, you get me out of here alive, and I'll live for you the rest of my life. Sure, you will. Now, what what kind of deal is this? Is she offer God a deal that He can't refuse, so that it's a win-win? I get what my want I want, and God gets what He wants. And I would say no. It's not quite like that. It is a desperate plea. It's it's God honest communication, but God's not a gumball machine, and we can't just try to concoct something that we think is of great value to Him, and we barter, we trade here, I give you this, you give me that. But it is a very serious, heartfelt conversation. It's God that's closed her womb. She understands the root, she understands the source. It's the sovereign, powerful God, and she goes to God this God, and she pours her heart out. But in her prayer, you'll notice that she is completely at His mercy. She realizes that she's at His mercy. She's not demanding anything of God. She is humbly asking for something here. She takes prayer to a new level of sincerity because she realizes, I can't stay in this place. This is not life. So she takes her prayers to a new level of sincerity. To get action. It reminds me of in the Gospels where the disciples were sent out and they were given this assignment and they were casting out demons but there was this one poor sick boy and a distraught father that they tried to exercise this demon and it didn't happen and Jesus says sometimes it takes prayer and fasting. Uh, the idea is that sometimes we have to do more than we think. We have to up the level of sincerity. Or maybe sometimes we have to give more of ourselves in order to get something in the kingdom of God to change. So they have to be willing to uh, be hungrier for the kingdom of God. For thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven and as on earth. Hungrier for that than even to feed their own stomachs. 
Sometimes that's what it takes. And Hannah ups her level of her prayer. And what happens? Something changes. It wasn't God. God didn't change. Something changed. Now this kind of prayer, Hannah is willing to give up the very thing that she would hold the most dear in life. It's very, very plain and clear there. She comes to a place really where she is willing for her heart to be changed. She pours her heart out to God. He's the source. She's got to hammer this out with the Lord. And she's the one that walks away with a changed heart. You know, there are times where there are situations in our lives where praying in an easy chair just doesn't work. Sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. There are all levels of prayers. That's why we have yeses, noes, and waits for God, from God. But we also may have, well, it's not that God doesn't want to do it. It's that we have to grow in an area. It, it requires us to grow. It requires us to have a greater kingdom perspective. It requires us to hunger more for what God wants and maybe less for what we want. There's a, there's a, a, a dynamic here. It's a relationship. That's why I opened it with this idea that we are hearing a true story of a mother who is distraught every day of her life, but she wants what's in heaven. She wants to pack it down in here to ease the pain and the misery. She wants to meet with God and hash this out, not run away, not do her own thing. The prayer's not twisting God's arm behind his back, you know, okay, okay, I can't take the pain anymore, I'll give it to you, whatever it is. Prayer is rising up to see what good the Father has for us. That's the change of heart, it's... God, you're writing my story. I want you to write my story. And I realize that the only way that I can find peace and joy in my life is to understand how you're writing my story. But I want you to write it because you're the sovereign God. And if it's, if it's not you, then it's pain and misery every direction I go. So what is the story? What have you written for me? Because that's what I want. And that's what will set me free. Is it marriage? Is it uh, motherhood, is it ministry? What have you written for me? What do you have for me? I want to know. And she submits her heart there to God. The, in, in mercy and humility, she submits it. And what happens? She leaves with happiness in her heart that she hasn't had for a long time because of that fervent, dynamic, powerful, rising up kind of prayer. So what changed? Not God. Her perspective on her predicament changed. Her willingness to give more of herself to God, to submit herself to the Lord. Her willingness to find joy in the life that God has for her. She doesn't know for sure what it is. She thought it was motherhood. What else could it be? In that culture, that's what you did. That was not happening for her. Let me show you why this is not a deal. She didn't cut a deal or barter with God. In verse 18, she went her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now why? God didn't give her a promise, your wish is granted, in this text. He didn't give her that promise. She didn't say yes. It worked. She went away a satisfied, happy person because she met with God. She hashed it out with God. She poured her heart out. She knew that God 
heard her. You see, if it was a deal, what happens is you pray, and then you get pregnant, and then life is good. Right? I got what I want. The deal worked. That's not what happened here. She prays, and life is good. Now, God does hear her. God does answer her prayer. But in it, when you're in the midst of prayer and you're under that cloud and you're in the state of desperation, you don't always know what God's going to do. So it was hammered out before the circumstance changed. At that point, she didn't get a fertile womb. As far as she knows, she gets a new perspective. She gets a new idea in her petition. She doesn't get a promise. But she gets heard. And that means the world to her. As a matter of fact, she names her son Samuel, which means God is heard. That's how, that's the impact. It's like you naming your son or daughter, answer to prayer. Being heard by God is a big deal. We take it for granted. We take it for granted that God listens to us every time we address Him in prayer. He hears. It doesn't hit this ceiling and drop back down to earth. He hears every prayer that we utter to Him. That's how He delights in this kind of communication. He wants to work out life with us. The whole book of Scripture is the book of redemption. He wants to restore us there. Robert Alter, this Hebrew scholar, he he comments that she's at peace for what she didn't do and for what she did do. She's at peace for what she didn't do. What she didn't do was stay and listen to Penina and just stay in that misery and say, oh well, this is my lot just to be poked at. I'm just going to be a punching bag. She didn't do that. And remarkably, she didn't stay and settle for her husband's offer or advice. Now, Elkanah loves Hannah. There is no question where she stands in this destructive polygamous relationship. They go to the temple, and Peninnah gets her due and her children. There's the law you give family members, such and such. Hannah gets the double portion. There's no law for love, right? Corinthians tells us there's no law for love. You just lavish it, lavish it, lavish it. So now you have this relationship where it's clear where the different wives stand. Peninnah is valued for the children that she gave Elkanah. She's got to live with that. Now, it's no wonder, and it's wrong, and it's a sinful response, but it's no wonder she's poking at Hannah and provoking Hannah. It's because she's miserable. Because not only does she have what Hannah wants, but Hannah has what she would want. Hannah has the husband's love. And in no uncertain terms, he loves his wife. He loves her well. This wife, number one, I guess. And I'll say wife, number one, because I'm just going to imagine that he married uh, Hannah first and found out she was barren, and so he took on another wife. So in this relationship, you have... uh, The two wives are miserable and the husband's miserable because he wants his love for her, his adoration. I love you so much. I really do. 
Now, why isn't my love for you in its abundance enough? I want it just to cover all of your misery. I want it to be so strong and I want you to feel it so powerfully in your heart that all the woes of the world melt before my love. Have you ever thought about that for your spouse? Have you ever wished that for your spouse? Why, isn't, why aren't you just so captivated with my love that all that stuff doesn't matter? That's what's going on here. Now, I, I have no doubt he really loved her, that this was all very sincere and very, very true. But she doesn't settle for that either because he is not her all in all. He can't be the answer to all her problems. He's not designed to be that. His love is imperfect. It's just going into another form of misery, potential misery. She doesn't settle for that as much as her husband loves her. She has to work this out with her maker, with her God. That's the answer. So she rises to talk to God. She brings her anguish to God. God hears her ailing soul. And she walks away a changed woman because of that. Now we do know that she was blessed with Samuel. We also know that after that, she had more children, more sons and daughters. But the freedom and the peace came by giving herself, submitting herself, delighting herself in God, and more specifically, letting God define her life, letting God write her story. That's how she wanted to find her peace and her freedom. And in this prayer, you know, it's, it's as much of an offering as it is a request to ask for something. It's as much as an offering. Verse 11, uh, I will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now this is a magnified version in what's, in what's true for every mother and relationship, and that is when, when you get that gift, part of getting that gift of a child means giving that child. You give that child. You give your child to, to, to the world in a sense. You give, you give that child to how God designed that child to operate in and to the bless the world. But more importantly, God asks us to give our children to Him. And He's in charge. And so this is like a magnified view of what happens in smaller instances in our life. We know, mothers know, that there is not just a receiving, but you've got to share. You've got to share. You have to give. Here. So she makes this vow, no razor will cut his head. And that's a Nazarite vow, and that could be a temporary thing. In this case, it's a lifelong thing. She's saying, you give me a son, and he is yours for your service. It's a dedication. It's a vow there. And specifically a son, and specifically vowed to serve in the temple of the living God. So technically, she gets the son just for a short time till he's weaned. And then God becomes his parent. And she puts him in God's hands. He's yours. She sees him whenever she goes to the temple, brings him that sweet little robe and so forth. There's still a relationship. But she puts him in God's hands. And lo and behold, God does parent Samuel. At a young age, he hears the voice of God. Samuel, Samuel. And he develops this relationship with God. 
And they become tight, so to speak. He becomes a mighty servant of God. And this, by the way, was written at the end of... The, it's in the time of Judges. You know, that, that terrible period of Israel's history where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. I mean, it's just calamity. It was, it was tragedy because the people of God were so idolatrous and they fell into sin and they did everything they weren't supposed to do. And here comes this little kid. This little kid whose mother who had this spirit that rose up, he comes and he's God's servant. And God uses him to call the people of Israel back to himself. And in a sense, he had the same uh, fighter spirit or a rising spirit, accomplishing spirit as his mom. Because he obeyed the Lord. And he would rise to accomplish things for the Lord. And it was through Samuel, God used Samuel to anoint the king and the kings of Israel. So in closing, I I hope that this one little snippet of redemptive history serves as an encouragement to all of us, but in particular uh, to our moms, our heroes who bless us in so many ways with with your motherhood. You bless our church. You bless our society. You bless our nation with your children. I pray that it's an encouragement for us to see that there's a a, a way for our hearts to be changed and that predicaments are not what rule us, but our relationship with God and letting God write our story and finding delight in that. That's where the peace and freedom comes. What is it that you have for me, Lord? And no matter how much life hurts and no matter how much we're experiencing, we give Him our anguish and we're heard. And God has a plan. And He will change our hearts and lift up our downcast souls so that our circumstances no longer control us. So rise up. Rise up. May God bless the preaching of His Word.